so it's first of all I wanted to say thanks for making this happen and uh, this is this is the first episode of something completely brand new uh, it might it might work might not work we're just doing this for fun I'm gonna edit this later on so this you you might not even hear that but welcome to the go ahead Nabil Edge Grip podcast Edge Grip podcast which is a brand new podcast that is all about motorcycle road racing and a little bit of street riding not too much and bikes and bikes 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 bikes. and i want to say it's just a trip being here recording the first episode looking at nikki hayden's old racing suit and surrounded by by just legendary equipment and legend legendary race motorcycles from from the master himself how many times tuner in the year four five six three 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 that i remember and just legendary riders, legendary riders going through your hypercycle race team, right? So we're here with the legend himself, Carrie Andrew. <laughs> Tell us a good story. I just want to say thank you guys for coming by and spending the day with me at Hypercycle. So yeah, it's I'm I usually live in in Las Vegas, Nabil. You you live in Encino, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and it's it's a rare moment that I I showed up in the valley because I used to live here. I had some other other business in the valley, and then I was like, yeah, I can't miss a trip to the to the shop, especially since you have you have one of my you have my motorcycle at your shop right now, waiting to be rebuilt. Uh, but let's let's talk a little bit about what you're working on right now. I am building a couple of GSXR. 2005 G6R 1000 engines for guys that race cars, uh, little cars in the dirt, uh, and preparing the Phillip Island bikes. Uh, just wanted to finish them all up and assemble them so all the pieces are in place and that they don't get lost and misplaced. Uh, I also have a, uh, a brand new G6R 1000 I got to build for you. <laughs> so I've got it all apart, but I'm waiting for an engine stand that I can borrow from friends that I that will make life easier for me. Plus, I want to take a little time to um, make a little room on the on the on the benches on the engine benches. I also am working on a uh, uh, <clears throat> dual engine sorcerer history for Russ Collins project. I'm putting together the two engines that went into the Sorcerer. Um, I am at the moment uh, uh, taking a st- short break. With, we finished the lower ends, but I got to start on the top ends. They are just a little bit tight. I'm talking about the bottom ends, so I took a break until I have a chance to uh, decipher what that means, or maybe that is the way they have it. But uh, anyway, I will get back to it as soon as I make some more room on the in the engine room benches. So, so you're basically living the life. You're not you're not accepting any commercial customers. If someone comes in, you know, for an oil change, you're gonna you know show them, show them the way out and and have them go to another shop. You're just doing what you want to do, which is pretty much what all of us want to do. Well, you're you're watching me smile, and yes, you're right. That's just the way I like it. I'm having a great time here, working by myself with all these beautiful and wonderful machinery and tools that I have and um, I'm just like you said living the life I'm, I, I can't wait to get out there and and, and have some more uh, 
quality riding time. I try to do uh, Tuesday dirt bike rides and Saturday, Sunday, or Sunday mostly, some canyon rides on my Bandit. So uh, I'm having a good time. Thank you for asking. All right. By the way, for the, for the Wera folks, I just wanted to say he's not touching the engine, uh, so there's no need to check in tech, in tech inspection anything. There's nothing to see here, folks. <laughs> well, well, why, why are you laughing, Nabil? <laughs> no, I'm just because I know you're fast, so I don't think that's going to make a big difference. Uh, I used to be fast. Now <laughs> I, just, I just take my time. <laughs> I mean, so, Gary, coming here feels like walking into a museum. You got so many things hanging around and, and bikes in there. You want to give us a little tour of, of memory lane? Um, I don't really know where to start, but um, uh, I... I have a few stints into this business. Uh, started out as a writer, and uh, before I retired, um, I, I have some winds back here at Daytona. I had three three-hour wins in a row as an endurance team that we won a national championship, and that meant a lot to me at the time. It really taught me how to ride well, and uh, the endurance racing you, you get a chance to ride over and over and over the same scenario and you improve so that com that contributed to my de development as a writer unfortunately i ran out of time and family issues and then i had to switch um, careers and i became a tuner um, i had been building and tuning all of my bikes prior to that so i had a pretty good idea what to do um, i hooked up with um, the EBSCO team originally, and then we won the championship with that. That was the one-hour uh, Super Teams championship. We had people like Doug Pollan, Dale Quarterly, and other very notable riders riding a motorcycle. And uh, we sort of put the kibosh on the Ariam team and... Uh, they were dominating at the time, and we beat them on a G6R 1100 that wasn't supposed to even get on the podium. So we felt good about oh, wow. that. Yeah, we felt really good about that. That was a big, heavy bike. By the time I was done with it, they had no chance. But anyway, we uh, I loved doing the uh, modified uh, scenarios where when you're done, you smile. And so it's been a, it's been a good time for me. I've been very happy with my with the products that have turned out. So, for us that have know nothing about this, you know, when when we take our bikes to a tuning or or, or a performance tuning, we think, well, you know, it's going to put it on the dyno, tweak the map. There's a given recipe for each bike model, and it's just cut, copy, and paste in a sense. And I have sensing walking around this place that's a little more complicated than that. What's like the big challenge when you get a bike to work on like that? I like hearing from my rider his interpretation. Often I will ask the same question two or three different ways. And then um, I need certain information back for me to reach a proper conclusion about what's going on. What I found is that most riders have a different approach and a different uh, experience level with the feedback so sometimes it is necessary to ask the same question three or four different ways just so you can confirm that the information they're giving you is the one that's really happening so uh, 
It is very important to make the writer happy and give him all of the tools and make him comfortable with what he's got to work with. So uh, that is always my goal. I know my equipment is usually good enough to, to handle the challenge, so I focus on that. And so as writers, how should we think about learning how to give feedback? Because I know that's an important part. And I remember being uh, on the track with, with people saying, well, you know, give us some feedback. How's the bike feel when you go do your suspension tuning, right? And I don't know what to tell them. I'm like, it's fine. It's turning. It's accelerating. I still suck, but, you know, no difference. So so what do, like, you know, the average riders need to think about when they want to talk to somebody who's helping them? At our level that we usually present a uh, effort, uh, I don't really want my rider focusing on feedback. I would like for him to focus on writing and do everything that he can while he's doing that and focus 100% on what he's doing. I believe that it's our job later to download him. And so I want to hear answers to the questions I ask rather than have him tell me something that he feels is the answer. So I would rather, and when I say he, I mean the writer. And I've also had Elena Myers writing for me, so I shouldn't be uh, <laughs> <laughs> leaving that the female uh, uh, gender out of this. And I got to say, Elena Myers had given me some of the best feedback I've ever had. So um, uh, it is important to decipher the information in a particular way. If somebody's telling you something, but you don't really understand what, you, what they're telling you, I mean, it, it could be just a little bit off and you do the wrong thing, so you're going in the wrong direction. So I want to make sure I go in the right direction the first time. I've had some very good uh, uh, coaches in the suspension tuning. I've worked with Jim Lindemann very closely, and from my perception, that man was a phenom, and he was fantastic at what he did. I was happy to be around him and observe his talent. He, he did my, my last K6, right, and, and that thing was awesome. And he used to just smile every time he'd see me on the track and say, hey, I remember that bike. It was, I think, one of the last bikes he ever finished before. It's true that, yeah. Yep, yeah. yeah, it was a big loss losing Jim, but... Um, he was a good guy. Sooner or later, we're all going to follow him. Hopefully not, not, not too soon. Not I still have soon, plans yeah. to fun. <laughs> <laughs> still have, yeah. What, what do you think about uh, Rossi finally retiring? And who did you cheer for when, uh, when he was competing against Nicky? Uh, well, I was always rooting for Nikki. It had to be Nikki all the way, and I was very disappointed when Danny took him out on that one race, and uh, and then I was uh, then I observed that Honda finally put their foot down and got all their riders to support and help Nikki win the championship, and I was very happy about that. So it is. It goes without say that Rossi is so a big phenom and very very important to the sport, and we all know that. Um, none of us have taken that for granted, and we love what he's done for the sport and his contributions. I am particularly uh, fond of Mark Marquez's writing. I was there his first race at Laguna Seca, and I watched him uh, very closely, and that man can ride. So uh, I know Rossi discovered then and there <laughs> that he can ride also. <laughs> and uh, I, am, uh, I just get terrific entertainment from watching Mark ride. I, 
everybody else is up to par nowadays and his last two years where he was injured so everybody else has come a long way but i still see that mark will have a a dominant uh, performance here and there when he comes back okay so mark marquez versus dune in his heyday same bike you know th these questions are being posed all the time and people try to compare old stars versus new stars and i really don't think that it's a fair fair or reasonable comparison the problem is that back then the traction control and everything else was really in your wrist and so nowadays it's all in the in the hands of the tuners and the programmers and they allow you a certain amount of uh, traction slippage while and it's totally different from what it was back in the day so the guys that are able to use the most oh the least amount of throttle inhibition actually end up doing the best and so marquez is usually pretty pretty well known for having the the craziest slides yeah with the high sides yeah <laughs> so he likes having a little more uh, freedom on his traction control so do you think if we turn everything off right now in MotoGP, can Rossi do another 10 years? It's It might be harder for him now. Uh, the one phenomenal thing about Rossi is he went through many uh, development stages to keep up with the field. He started out with uh, everything being in his wrist. He, he adapted, and then Dorna went in and changed everything, and he adapted to that. So from my perception, the man is incredible. Too bad he he aged. He aged. I'd like, I'd <laughs> like, like all of us. I'd like to see him put in ten more good years, uh, as in near the front. Yeah, you know, it could be the vaccine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we had to go there. I had to go there. It's the internet. We can say whatever we want. <laughs> so yeah, apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, five one two fives, two fifties, five hundreds, eight hundreds, one thousands, and then one thousands with electronics. He he pretty much went through it all. Yes, so that is a, a sign of a very uh, adaptable rider who has a lot of talent. So uh, nobody could take that away from him ever, and uh, he's a star that he deserves to be. Yeah. He's got the talent. Do you think we have Americans right now to, to go up there and on the world stage? I'm sure we do. The problem is that uh, we don't have a program good enough to accelerate the youngsters to come along. Uh, well, I do hear some uh, that there's a new class coming with, uh, uh, with that will address that with Motor America, and I'm very happy to see that. I know that MotoGP and Motor America are committed to making the sport grow and de and develop the American side of it. So um, I'm hoping to see some young talent develop and be able to uh, present itself against the competition in Europe. So uh, can't wait, but um, they do have an advantage. They have some very nice academies out there, and they have some very good writers that are influencing the uh, new and upcoming youngsters that they have to work with. Yeah, we, we do need something like the VR46 Academy over here. I yes, mean, yes, I, we do. Yes, I, we do. Yeah. So I've tried approaching Kevin and uh, Wayne on the issue, and um, 
They are both reluctant to really do something on their own. They're very concerned about liability issues in America, which obviously they don't necessarily face back in Europe, but here they do. So it's, I don't understand the shortcomings that they face that way. So uh, I hope it's somehow resolved and I hope that we end up with a, a quality academy. I know we still have some very, 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 very wonderful champions from back in the day and I'd love to see them contribute to the youngsters and uh, really make them accelerate their learning curve. Yeah, I mean, you can see the shortage even in, in Motor America races where, you know, almost half the grid is not from the U.S., right? And Yes. It's just we have we have so much potential here and, and people would rather, you know, not, not that I'm knocking down football or baseball or basketball, but if, if someone, you know, can put, put an attention, you know, on, on that sport uh, and we just, you know, get a fraction of the people that would otherwise, you know, go, go see a bowl game, just come in and, and buy a ticket to the motorcycle race, just help the sport out, we'll, we'll be, you know, we'll be number one, just like the 80s. Uh, it was a very uh, gr uh, great event. Racing was a very big thing back in the day. And we as Americans had our own ways and lots of us built our own bikes and we participated. That wasn't happening in Europe at the time, but they completely skipped that part. And so they went to, uh, from machinery at the very low level that way to what they have now, basically. The factories are really making them shine and they are definitely getting, uh, they have the ability to get the most out of those bikes. So, uh, we are a step behind. We used to be in the lead, and we've lost that. And it is my um, opinion that we can get it back if we want to. Yeah, so I agree. Totally agree. Commitment is necessary, and for the time being, commitment is absent. So what puzzles me a little bit, especially your comment about liability and, and the issue of setting up maybe a development schools, motocross is doing great. Lots of attendance, lots of youngsters, excellent level, same level of risk in a sense, but road racing somehow seems to have been left in the dust there. I think we're talking about apples and oranges. These, the supercross, motocross riders are training by themselves in the off-season, but they're doing it by themselves or they're, they are responsible for their own training programs. Mm. So they attend whatever they feel is the best program for themselves, it's not like we have academies for them, but we do have trainers, people that are accomplished in the field that, that work with them. We have a similar scenario in road racing. Some of the accomplished riders of yesteryear are training or coaching some of the riders of today, but it's not an academy. And the academy is where you basically have students and they sit there and they learn everything that they need to know, not just bits and pieces. They actually learn everything. They learn the way of life of a racer. And I think that's important because then you can put everything in the proper perspective as a racer. Right. And from the attendees' perspective, you know, Americans love NASCAR, Indy a little less, right? Motocross a lot, road racing a little less. Do you have a sense of why there's this dichotomy where, I mean, you go to Spain and if you're a motorcycle road, road racer, you're a god. Well, they, they don't grow up with it like like uh, in Europe, right? 
And, and there's not enough. I mean, you don't see enough motorcycles on the road. I mean, in Europe, you go to, to any European city, it's all scooters, right? And it's all it's all yeah. motorcycles. Over here, you don't see them because the roads are not, you know, they're not safe for motorcycles here. So I, I don't even ride on the road. You don't ride on the road. Right. Carrie just does a little bit of... Canyons. Canyons. Um, <clears throat> your question was about why there's a difference between... Uh, our sports and so the main reason is expense so when we started in the 70s we were building our own bikes we literally could do it for dollars now you can't even buy tires for what we used in the whole year so uh, the tires are something that we used to use for maybe two three races or something of that nature and that gives you an idea of what the expense factor is. So road racing, you drop it once and you got to rebuild the bike. It's a lot of parts and a lot of body work. Uh, motocross, you drop it, you just pick it up and you go again. So um, the expense factor is big. The next thing that's uh, on that same level of importance is what we have to work with. The factories over time have taken all of the building and tuning responsibilities for themselves. They build and they tune. They send us race bikes and we basically have turned into parts changers. <clears throat> so we're working with the uh, race bikes that they send us and we work within the parameters that they allow us to work with. We don't have the MotoGP hardware. And we can't compete at that level. We can't get practice at that level. So all we have is the approach. So we can approach to keep on training in this way and try to make ourselves as good as we can under these conditions. Right. If I'm a kid and I want to train on Moto2, good luck getting a bike and being able to afford it. Right. Yeah. You need your entire yeah. family behind you. But you're not even going to get the ride if you don't have the potential. So. Right. Cameron Bubier is making me proud. I watch him ride, and I can't believe how much he's improved and how committed he is to making this work. And he's truly making it work, and I'm very proud of him. I wish him the best. Yeah, I mean, and adapting to to Moto2 from Superbike, is it's not an easy task. It's a completely different chassis, completely different engine, and... It's it's not a road bike that's been built. It's it's a very stiff chassis with with very little power, and and you need to figure out how to put that bike up straight and and not leaning over, which is pretty pretty tough, especially considering you're you're racing with another twenty guys that are as good as you. It's amazing how close and tight the racing is in the uh, Moto Two and Moto Three, and. This is where you're developing the writers that will be the stars of tomorrow. And this is the part that we need to be involved in. Yeah. And so, and it sucks that we're not, but it is what it is. So if nobody steps up and changes the situation or improves it in some way, you know, it's kind of, it's going to be a long struggle. It's, I think that the two of us, Nabil, as someone, and as people that are involved in trying to get customers, right? For our businesses, it's. I, I feel like American motorcycle road racing needs to take the same steps that any company does with the marketing, right? To to, to acquire more customers, you're building a market, right? Yeah. 
And uh, it's not a case where we come in and, and say, oh, we have a market cap of, you know, $2 billion and, and let's just capitalize on it. It's, it's a case where we create a customer, right? Just like, you know, Ronald McDonald creates customers, right? They, yeah. they, they start young and, and they get you like that. And I think, I think this is what's lacking in, in Motor America or in AMA, the, the approach of, Let's go get let's go get the customer. Let's create a market niche and 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 go after them aggressively. Yeah, I think if I can fold the approach a little bit, is everything Moto America is doing is very attractive to racers and people who already love motorcycles. There's not a lot of outgoing effort to people who are outside that world. So Formula One, for example, was a surprise, right? Uh, nobody knew about Formula One in the U.S. Five years ago, you asked somebody and you said Formula One, they thought it was like a dishwasher liquid or something. Now, I went to Austin, uh, it was a couple of months ago. It was the highest attendance they've ever had in spite of COVID because Drive to Survive, the series, got a lot of people excited about looking at it. I know the kids, for example, in our family were looking at it and saying, oh, I like the sport. They won't watch a race, but they'll watch the series. So there's a series coming up on Amazon, which I hope is going to at least get people here more attuned to motorcycle racing. And that may be a little bit the gateway drug if you think about it. But I, I think what Moto America should be doing is doing something similar here to, to get it to be popular with people who don't know anything about it and, and get more people to come in. That's what we do in business. Yeah. Right? People don't know your product. They don't know what you sell, why it's good, why it's fun. And you just have to make an extra effort to get them to understand that. Yeah, yeah. What I have to contribute to that is that Motor America is fairly young in, in this industry in, as an as a entity. So I do believe that they're making steps in the right direction and they uh, probably need a little bit of help in this area and they probably should seek it. But I, I think they're very young and they are evolving and they will eventually get there. And they're trying new things like the Bagger series. Yes. I mean, they're, they're, they're going after brand new customers, but those customers are already motorcycle fans, right? True. But at the same time, I like the level of commitment. I know that they're committed and they want to do as much as they can to make this sport grow. So... Maybe they're a little bit inexperienced in the field. Maybe they're not. I don't really know enough to, to really make a proper comment on that. But I do know that they are trying very hard to get there. And, and hats off to, to Wayne for just, you know, starting it. Because I remember when NASCAR bought AMA and it just botched it and, and killed it. And and we had nothing for a couple of years uh, except that, that shootout. Remember that shootout from Ulrich? Uh, he had he had a few oh, rounds that were like super, yeah no it, it was called superbike shootout and they only oh. did three rounds and Josh Hayes I think won that and we had nothing for a while until until Wayne you know did something and so so hats off to him yes for him to take this on and to put his all into it is uh, terrific uh, a, a world champion like him to to put his all into it is a terrific thing for us so. Between him, Freddie, Eddie, the, uh, the King, we have had some of the best writers in the world. And it all happened before anybody else. And that talent doesn't go away. I just am disappointed that it's not being handed down to the younger generations. And, and the younger generations are none of us, right? We're not younger anymore. <laughs> 
We, we don't fit the... Uh... <laughs> we might be the last generation of motorcycle racing. <laughs> yeah, millennials are not into it, are they? Yeah. Maybe I'm, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe Moto America should have their logos and, and things and, and do a, like a Fortnite equivalent, like, you know, a road racing game. Because you look at the kids now, they're spending... 20, 30 hours a week playing video games and doing homework, and that's yeah. it. They don't go outside. Just start with the sharing economy, right? Just split yeah. the race bike between multiple people. That too. That too. Yeah. Well, the rent-a-bike yeah. programs are very attractive. Like, yeah. I want to take the kids dirt riding, and you can go here to Gorman, and, and, you know, for like 150 bucks, you get the bike, the equipment, and everything else. You just show up and ride. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great way to do it. I'm not ready to commit... 20 grand to buying everybody dirt bikes and equipment and if they are going to use it once. Yeah, and so that sharing economy is, is, is a really good yeah. idea. Video games, right? I yeah. mean, they, they can start a video game for Moto America and, and put it in, you know, every kid's hand. Yeah. They can start uh, at school, right? They can approach schools and say, hey, we have a program. Hey, work with us, right? There's a lot of things you can do as, as a company to acquire more customers that no, don't know about. Yeah. Yeah. They almost need a marketing partner, I would think. We should take over. We should take over. (laughs) Go ahead, Nabili. You're already running half the world. (laughs) Oh, God. How many companies? Six, seven? No, no, one right now. One? Just one? What happened? Two. Well, two. Two? Two, yeah. (laughs) I got busy. (laughs) (laughs) We're monotalent, unlike Carrie here, who's multi talented. Yeah. Yeah, we we push very hard, very, yes. very hard. <laughs> yes, yes, we do it. we do great battle <laughs> in the marketplace. <laughs> so going back a little bit to the uh, world championship scene, uh, so we have Cam, Joe, and now SDK in Moto Two. Okay, what do you think? Well, I'm rooting for Cam. Um, it's obvious you have some very very good guys in front of him, and it's difficult to. Uh, really uh, expect for Cam to be beating them, but I, I, I have a feeling that the fr- some of the front runners are going to be going to MotoGP. That might make it easier for him. Uh, I'd love to see him get to the top of the class. Is he on the right equipment? Um, it seems like it's close enough. I'm sure that his equipment could be a little bit better, as in he is not at the front consistently so but he has had some stints up front so it can't be too far i'm talking about his equipment but maybe it isn't all the way up there and some of it is him and uh, maybe he's getting a little bit more of the equipment than the equipment is capable of giving him because i I watched him carefully and closely at coda and i know that he knows that track very well and that is to his advantage so i haven't really had a chance to see him that close in the european tracks but i know he took care of business at coda yeah yeah we haven't seen sdk race there so that's going to be interesting i saw him once he came to uh auto club Okay. And he got on a 600 and ran like a ridiculous 124 or some some time you wouldn't think would be on possible a on a 600. Yeah. And, and, and you know, he sounds very talented. The fa- the fastest I ever seen someone ride there was um, Ben Spees versus Matt Milan in 2007, I think, and they were running 123s. Yeah, a 124 and a 600 is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Big leap, though, again, from, from American or, or, or Japanese 600s to uh, Moto2. Yeah. What do you think about uh, Ganya? Ganya taking everything. Easy. 
Well, he's on a very good bike, and uh, he's got a very good team that's got a lot of experience, and obviously he's got a lot of talent. So uh, when you have a good accomplished team, it's easy to recruit the good riders. But but he had he had Elias as a teammate for, for a round, right? And he had... Uh, Josh Herron. Josh Herron. Yeah, ah. Josh is great. Is he really We great? We need more Josh. Is, is he really great or is he flamboyant and then at the end he doesn't deliver? But that's what makes it great. I don't think he's that consistent. So there's ups and downs. He's a brilliant rider, but he's even he's like a little bit like Rossi. He's a little more brilliant marketer. Yeah. And the sports needs more people like that because he's, he's out there. He's doing different things. He's funny. He's, he's charismatic. Um, and you need those characters in the sport. I mean, Rossi did a lot of good to MotoGP. And, and Heron, I mean, now he's sponsored by a friend of mine, actually, Fresh and Lean, and, and he's actually bringing them a lot of business okay. with his voice. So he's the kind of guy that needs to be out there. When we talk about Moto America doing an effort in doing better marketing, they should probably ask him to go out there and talk to all the kids and get them excited and maybe, you know, run like little bike programs and so on, because that's the kind of personality that will win you fans. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. His family setting back... In Georgia, they have a little track on their property there that he practices and races, so they could easily add some youngsters to that group. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk to him about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so who you, you've seen hundreds of riders? Who's who's the most talented, except for Nabil? Who 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 did you look at that was coming up and say this this guy, they have it? I saw that in Nikki. Yeah, I watched him ride. Uh, the year before he hooked up with us and uh, it seemed like he was able to ride that motorcycle like no one I'd seen before so he impressed me a lot and uh, he just needed a little bit of a uh, he needed to combine his program or he, he needed to make his program whole he needed to finish the race completely rather than just do sections of really really good and then run off the track here and there so That's, that's how you do it. That's how, that's how you get to the limit, right? You need, you need to run off the track a few times to figure out where the limit is. He was always looking for the limit. <laughs> so he developed, he rounded off really nicely, and he showed his good stuff to many people and the world. Uh, you shall be missed, brother. Well, he is missed. I, I look at his uh, suit hanging here, and I makes me all emotional. Me too. He's a great person. I miss him so much. It was always good to see him at the racetrack, get a smile and talk a little bit. So, uh, well, we got to wait for the next one. Yep. It's coming. It's coming. Some, so, somewhere, somewhere in the U.S., there's a little kid that is playing a video game and says to himself, I can, I can do it in real life. Daddy, can I get a motorcycle? And that's how it starts. Yeah. And as long as mommy lets him. Yeah. That would be, I have a little NSR sitting in the garage. Mommy doesn't let. <laughs> you know, my mom didn't really have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask my mom. I just came home Monday with a 50cc Derby Yumbo. 1984 Derby Yumbo. And uh, rode that thing and then traded it in for a Fantic, 50cc Fantic Caballero. I don't know if you know what that is. No. And it had a Fantec competition engine, so it had a 10-horsepower engine instead of the regular 8-horsepower. And that's how I started. 
So you were braver than me. I didn't defy the orders. I waited until I was 38. <laughs> and my first bike was a Harley Fat Boy. Oh. <laughs> good, good bike to learn on. <laughs> yeah, I was 14 and, and age of license age in, in Israel was 16. And I obviously rode without a license. And once I got my 50cc license, obviously I upgraded to a 1979 Yamaha XS400, which also I didn't have a license for. So that that was that was a nice story, and I I crashed every which way, every bike. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I didn't have the balls because that was the thing to do when you were in high school. I was dying to get a little scooter because that's how you got the girls. Hey, and I followed my parents and lost and never got the scooter. <laughs> and I was so traumatized. It took me another 18 years of like being an independent professional <laughs> to, to get on it. <laughs> I just I just said, hey, I like motorcycles. And I, I remember reading about back then. It was 19, 19, the 85 Gixxer when it came out. And I was like, oh, they did, I want this, right? And, you know, in Israel, mm-hmm. it's, you know, you're, you're a little 14-year-old kid and you know, I wanted a Gixxer 750, and my mom was like, you're not getting this. So I showed her. I got the 1,000. Yeah. In Lebanon, it was the war, so we had no money. Uh, so okay. you could, you know, if, if you could afford, there was a um, company called Pasol, P-A-S-S-O-L, and they had those little 50cc scooters. You can only get two cars, white and red, and if you had one, you were the man <laughs> on campus. And unfortunately, I didn't get my parents to make the, the, the plunge there. I did sneak in a couple of rides from friends on their bikes, and I felt like I was transgressing dramatically. You, you know, you should come down to my house. So just, just for everybody that listens, that think that peace doesn't exist, exist. I'm from Israel, and Bill, you're from... Lebanon. There you go, neighbors. Neighbors. Well. You can't cross from one country to the other, probably still. But, and they're officially at war, but... Uh, we're probably 100 miles from each other's houses. It's nobody wants war. It's, it's going to end. I mean, the next generation is just going to understand that this is, it's, it's stupid. You I know think what they mean? get it. It's just idiotic. Yeah, talking to them, I think they get it. I hope they do. Well, to what you guys said, I, I'm going to add that I'm actually from Bulgaria. Also very close oh, wow. to where you are. And um, my first ride was, uh, I was probably 13 and I had borrowed... Uh, more or less like stole my uncle's Simca scooter. <laughs> so uh, French, right? The oh, brand? it's German. Simca is German? I believe okay. so. And uh, so I did that a few times. I used to spend the summers with my grandma in uh, a different city. So I would borrow and whenever I can try to ride it. And there's been more than one time where he came home and I wasn't back yet, then grandma would uh, send him on an errand till I got back. <laughs> so I was very lucky that way, but uh, th- that's all I had. I never had anything on my own until I came to this country. So uh, my first bike was an SL100, and I didn't really do much with that, but then the next bike was an SL300, 350 that is, and I still have it here. And that's the bike that uh, got me started on everything that I am. So I learned to road race on it, I learned to drag race on it, uh, and uh, I had a fabulous blast, and I used to uh, wheelie it past the, uh, what we called the narcs, the people that would uh, try to keep you uh, from leaving the campus at, at high school. <laughs> I went to high, Hollywood High School, and we had an open campus, and uh, there was always uh, these couple of guys that uh, kind of recognized everybody and took their names down, and then you had to do uh, some some kind of cleanup somewhere to make up for it. 
but eating lunch outside was so much more fun, especially when you wheelied right for the guy and he had to jump out of the way. Oh, yeah, it's a freedom thing. We had a little crack in the in the fence in my high school. You could lift one of the rods of the of the fence and go, and sneak out. We would go across the street and buy the exact same candy you could buy inside the school, but it tasted <laughs> so much better when you snuck out and bought it outside that store. That's, freedom, baby. Yep. Those, those yeah. are the freedoms that we grew up with and that are not necessarily here anymore. And I'm feeling sorry for the new ones, for the for the newcomers, but or the youngsters. You hear that truck in the background? Just just for everyone, uh, we're in Kara's shop right now, so there's, there's some back, background noise from the street. Ah. So you mentioned something about equipment you start on. Um, obviously, I didn't start on the right bike for, for road racing, but uh, I did it even worse the second time uh, because I could... My first bike was a, a full Moto America bike. Um, right, I took I took the um, what's um, California Superbike, uh, which I thought was a driver improvement course. I had no idea because I just wanted to ride better on the street, and it was great because they had like very basic techniques on on how to do certain things, very simple, and it gave you a good sense of what to look for when you get on the track. They didn't convert you to Scientology? Did they? No, no, no. Okay. They tried. Right. And I was just not smart enough or, <laughs> <laughs> or too resistant. But... Uh, I'll do whatever Tom Cruise does, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so hot. All right. The guy can jump off airplanes, uh, land, you know, in the middle of a field, and a helicopter comes in, and, you know, and he does everything himself. So... Yeah, he does do his stunts. Yeah. But where I was going with this is, um, then I got a Moto America bike. And it was set up for a Moto America racer. And I took a couple of coaching lessons back in the days from Jason Pridmore. And he and he was laughing and, and saying, well, why did you get this bike? I said, because I can. But he said, just go get a stock bike off the showroom floor. You'll learn to get the feeling. And, and then you can grow the bike with you as you become as you go faster and i remember for a while i didn't listen obviously and and you know it, it break the car the bike broke like flat it wouldn't even dive because it was set up a, at a spring rate and and a setting that was for motor america racer i'm going 80 miles an hour slower on a straight and there was no feel and so that's good advice for people is you know start modest because that's actually how you learn better then starting with the best bike you can get. And, and it, it lowers the price of entry. And it's fun riding a slow bike fast, right? Instead yeah. of riding a fast fast bike I, slow. I actually regret not starting on a 300. Now I would do it a different way. Well, there's a little more to it than that. So if you ever have the aspirations of becoming a top-notch rider, you have to learn to work with what you have. When the race starts... This is the bet you're going to ride. So it, he who can adapt the best, because it's very seldom that you actually have a perfectly tuned bike for the entire track. So he who, who can adapt the best ends up doing the best. So when you start out on a motorcycle that is deficient in some way, you learn to overcome deficiencies and ride around them well, if everything is perfect, the moment something goes wrong, you, you're spoiled. Right. So... It, we call it a biagi. <laughs> Pull, <laughs> pulling a biagi. <laughs> so for me, it's important that you start out and uh, 
on, on something like you said, humble and just work yourself, work your way past it. Yeah, and it's more fun. I mean, like, I wish I started on a 300 because the pressure on a 600, the bike goes faster. So now you're kind of over your head and, and you, you get the stress of, uh, I got to keep up with the bike more than the other way around. You start modest. I rode a 300 like after 10 track days of, of being on a 600. And it was so much more fun because I was able to control the bike. I felt like it was that was an easy task. And it made the track day more fun. So, and if it's not fun, it's a punishment. You're not going to stick with it. Yeah. So one more argument into starting humble, I think, there. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Okay. All right. We do you want to talk MotoGP? MotoGP. Um, hmm. like who's your favorite? Not my next not, year. Not my strongest. Okay, I'm still rooting Mark. I'm. I'm. Yeah? I'm still trying to figure out. I think if he does not have any uh, physical problems or whatever his sight issue is, I think he's the man. Yeah. I'm still trying to figure out what Aprilia is doing there. I think I'm very happy to see all of them contributing, the KTM, the Aprilia, the Ducati, and the Yamahas are very, very good. Obviously, the Honda is very good, even though it's tuned to one or two individuals. It's, but I'm, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why, right? I'm happy to see everybody participating. But as someone that had two RSV4s, and you remember the first one that I had and the second one that I had, the first one was the 2011 Biaggi edition, and the second one was the 2016. And... As someone that had those two motorcycles and was an Aprilia fan, they were winning World Superbike, right? And they were they were always always up front. And then they went into MotoGP and they stopped winning World Superbike. They stopped developing the bike. And and as someone that yeah, I can't I can't buy the MotoGP bike, right? But I can I can upgrade my RS V4. It wasn't at the top anymore, and it just started going backwards. Even though it was winning, uh, it was winning all all the comparisons, right? But that's that's in road configuration. Once you once you took it to the track, it was it was too soft. Um, they go through a number of steps and commitments. So once they commit to World Superbike, they put the best people on it, and and they develop that bike to its capacity. Once they stopped doing that and focused on MotoGP, the development team basically. Uh, is committed to the MotoGP team and they want to make that thing successful. So they're not really uh, uh, so into the Superbike team as they used to be. Yeah, look, look at Kawasaki. Right. Kawasaki said, okay, we're going to go racing World Superbike. We're not going to do MotoGP. We're just going to do that one bike great. And that's that's exactly what they did. And even though in road configuration it's not a competitive bike, once you take it to the track and you do slight modifications on it, you see that it wins. You know most of club racing, uh, national national racing, and world superbike. Not this year, but you see what happens when you're you're focused on one area. Um, I think most of the Japanese machinery that is made. Uh, in a sport sport bike market is essentially uh, capable of being raced in a good way if you spend enough effort on building it properly so uh, the European bikes have a slightly different approach I feel they have more accessories that they are interested in selling you right away that are more into the competition uh, sec sector and uh, the uh, 
the Japanese uh, 600s or other bikes that they have are not being uh, offered that way. So the Europeans are obviously trying to influence the buyer, entice him with more competitive items. So it it's definitely different than it used to be that way. And it's definitely different than what the Japanese offer. So mm -hmm. now they have a slightly better model, the top-of-the-line sport model with better they, they brakes. Learn from the, learn, I think from from the Germans as well, if, if you look at BMW, you can't go out and buy a BMW motorcycle on, with the price that's on the website, right? I mean, you got to start configuring that thing. It's just like a Porsche. Yes. And, yeah. you know, one one time I said, okay, I'm going to get a Porsche because I'm getting older and, and I need, you know, I need something cool. And... I look. I looked up on the website and said uh, fifty-two thousand dollars, and I'm like, "Oh, really?" And I go. I go to a dealership, and it's more like ninety thousand, right? <laughs> so it's it's the same. Whatever everyone's trying to you know squeeze out all the accessories and and uh, every, everything else that's gonna do the you know increase the margin. Well, they don't have the volume. Like the Japanese bike makers sell. Low small CC bike to in Indonesia and India and places like that where they sell millions of them. That it, it's a much bigger market than they make their money there. Plus they have other industries that they're in. If you're Ducati or your well, Aprilia has uh, Piaggio that helps them. But but if you're Ducati, that's your only margin. Unless you start you know building bikes in China and selling 150 CC bikes in Indonesia, you have to make your your money on on the Panigales and the Scramblers and. There's only so many they sell a year. I think twenty-five thousand a year is their volume. I think and also Harley, the, in their good days, were selling to fifty thousand a year, which is, yeah, you know, ten times that number. And then if you Kawasaki or Honda, millions. Yeah, I think bikes. I think the customer profile changed a little bit. It was it used to be when when you wanted to get a leader bike, you used to come in for for twelve grand, you'd get a Jixon one thousand, uh, and you you do you know you do stuff for it for like two two grand, and then you go track days or you go racing or you just keep it on the street right but but now the, the the target audience the bikes are so good that the target audience if they want something for the street they're going to get an adventure bike right yeah. and the people that get ducatis and aprilias and and all those high-end 1000s they're more interested in bling right they, oh, they want to get your coffee yeah they, they want they want the the coolest thing out there um they don't care if it's the fastest, right? As long as as long as Ducati put on their website, oh, 258 horsepower, and you put it on a dyno, it's like 150 in the rear wheel, right? As long as it's on the website, you know, people are going to get it, and they're going to go, oh, I got, I got this. It's the best thing. It's, it's so cool. Look at the bling, right? Yeah. It's it's a different audience than people that used to just spend the least amount of money to get the most amount of fun. Yeah. What I see on the street when I ride in the canyons, it's very seldom that a person on a Ducati was actually going to ride it hard. So then you see a whole lot of people with 1,000 Japanese machinery and they're riding the hell out of those things and they're having fun. And the guys on the Ducatis, they're so paranoid about dropping it. And abusing it, it's so expensive to fix. They seem a little reluctant to really crank it up. So that is my observation that I have had over the last five, ten years, and it's been my observation really throughout throughout my uh, career 
that the Ducati street bikes I've ever seen were never really used all the way t to their capability. And they never, and, and I never had the proper respect for them because of that. So, and, and, and from my experience, even people when people started using them uh, to the full extent, it's always it always means a, an hour and a half break in your track day because someone spilled some oil, right? It's always a Ducati that, that <laughs> lives a line, yeah. But and they're very expensive to prep for the track. I mean, the program Cal Wyman was running cost probably twice what other privateers were running on, on similar Japanese bikes. And, and, that, and, and they're hard to get. Yeah. I mean, if he didn't have support from directly from the factory and a direct line to them, there's parts he would never get. So it's a lot, it's a lot more exclusive. It's a lot more difficult. Look at Buzz, do. right? Look at, look at Buzz. Buzz was fighting, fighting for his life in Moto America all year. And he just he didn't have the motorcycle under him, right? And they were doing everything they could to help him. But then he, he got a ride on, on, on a World Superbike, and he said, it's, it's a different level. Yeah. Right? It, it, just from Moto America Ducati to a World Superbike Ducati, Charles Davis's bike, and he was, you know, he was fighting for the lead. Yeah. Because if you don't have Ducati behind you, you're not going to get everything you can get out of those bikes. Yeah, somebody told me once, and Kerry, you probably know that 10 times better than me, but that the, the tuning window for a Ducati is very narrow. You have to get it right, and if you're off by a little, the bike is just unrideable. Yeah, I can't really uh, say how far unrideable it is, but I know that they have so many options and so many variations with their linkages and all these other aspects of tuning it that uh, yes just like you said it is very important for them to get it right on so the thing that could be said about baz's team from this year this team is in development as well and uh, uh they're recruiting and utilizing people that are learning how to make this happen as well so uh i think maybe this year would be better for them i hope yeah, he's not he's not around anymore. He went back to right, World Superbike. but they're gonna have somebody else yeah. fill in for him. I, I wanted Elias to to do it, but I think he's he's done. I think uh, he's doing making shoes in Italy or something. Whatever he's doing. Uh well, they're talking about the uh, one of the MotoGP guys, and I'm not gonna say that right okay. now because uh, they they're not done yet. So okay, I've heard some rumors. Yeah, so hopefully uh, they line him also, and uh, it's talent is. Supreme. Is, is, it, is it going to be Rossi? Come no. no. <laughs> <laughs> is, is Rossi going to come in for a few rounds? My, my statement is that talent is supreme. So it's always good to get the best <laughs> talented rider on the bike. Yeah, and, and make sure that rider gels with the bike, right? That the team gels with yeah. tuning the bike yeah. and the rider is happy. I think he's, he's riding somewhere in the desert at some point, right? The guy we're talking about? Uh, I, I didn't hear that, so I don't know. Okay. Well, what did you hear? Tell me. Petrucci. Petrucci? Okay. Yeah. He's doing the Dakar. Oh, Is he really? I got yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, on KTM. He's yeah. going to go on, on, in the dirt. That's going to be awesome. I love the guy. He's such a nice, nice person. That other guy that you have support for, the one you mentioned earlier, Yeah. he's going to be riding the 600 and 200. Okay. He's going to be writing for that team. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, speaking of the Dakar, did you see the new, uh, I know this is a road racing podcast, but you see the new quote-unquote Kijiva elephant from MV? Oh, yeah, the Lucky Strike. Yeah, like, it's not Lucky Strike. Lucky Explorer. Lucky Explorer. Lucky yeah. Explorer. See, see Looks it, like a good bike. See, if you put a, a whole circle over the bike, it's Lucky Strike, and that's that's not allowed. But if you put half a circle with some lines, it's Lucky Explorer. You can, you can you know, advertise that. I'm surprised they changed the brand. I guess I guess they didn't want to lend the kind of you know uh, exclusive road racing brand to the you know kind of dirt biking. I don't know. And then the timing versus the Desert X, right from Ducati. Yeah. So the timing is interesting. They're doing some cool things. I like how uh, you know they got this new Russian owners. Timur Sardarov is the CEO. Uh, you know they're they've. The new bikes are beautiful. It, don't don't I have a Chinese engine now? I don't think so. I mean, all the bikes have different parts, but there was like a big rumor at some point about them sourcing uh, or building bikes in China. I don't think that's panned out. I think they're still, for certain models at least, built hand-built actually in Skirana in Italy. But, uh, but their models are, are just, you want to put it in your living room. And just sit there and, and stare at it. You know, I, I probably wouldn't ride pretty. it. Too. The Brutale, the the Super Veloce, they're really beautiful bikes. Actually, Tonilias apparently is getting a uh, an nice. MV. Oh, nice. So we'll see. Again, we should probably delete these sequences <laughs> from this podcast because <laughs> we're not allowed to say these things. But um, he's uh, he's going to collaborate with them. Then they're doing now these electric bikes, electric scooters. They did one really cool that looks like a Vespa. Yeah. That's an electric scooter. So they're trying to diversify. And I heard the China story came about when there was rumor they were going to build a low CC bike for volume sales and sell it in Asia. Okay. Uh, I don't know where that plan is, but, you know, it's not a bad idea. Why not? Everybody's doing it. And yeah. I don't think it degrades your brand if you have a um, kind of small displacement well, market segment well, that serves know, the rest yeah. of the world. I don't know if you've ever been to India, but when you go to India, it's all small CC motorcycles over yeah. there and a few cars, right? But it's... The amount of motorcycles on the streets of Bangalore would blow your mind. Yeah. And yeah, it, I mean, I don't know how it would feel if I if I have a Ferrari and, and all of a sudden Ferrari made, uh, you know, 1,300cc uh, three-wheel cars oh, it's, in India. Oh, it's coming. Yeah, their SUV is coming, right? Yeah. Puro sangue. Yeah, there you go. It's... Ferrari has always, always been for racing, and every time you would buy a Ferrari, you would support the race team, right? Yeah. But... You know, people like us took over everything, right? Business people, and and we just need to just suck the dollar right out of you know everything. So if if the Ferrari horse can you know sell SUVs, that's that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it's all about branding, right? It's it's. I mean, yeah, you can, and and also when you sell more, you have more money for racing, right? Right. So. And I think that's the that's the smart point about yeah. If you have to go down market in a sense. Um, you could do it under a different brand too, but but then you expand your your source of income and you get more funding for the race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, where are we at? Should we finish? And where are Yeah, we're an hour. Yeah. All right, so that's it for the first episode of Edge Grip Riders. No, Riders. Edge Grip Podcast. Ah, come on. <laughs> I want to go on the track already. The edge Grip. <laughs> <laughs> podcast uh and i i want to go to track two so when when can i do that carrie you have my <laughs> <laughs> no I'm, I'm not gonna put you on the spot it's fine 
it's fine. I'm not. I'm. Don't answer that. So, so next week. No, 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 no. Don't, don't answer that. And and uh, Nabil, you're on the track pretty much every weekend. Uh, no, once a month usually. Once a month. Yeah, yeah. Somebody has to work with your exotic MV. Yeah, I love this bike actually. I mean, now we're running over, but it's a uh, it's uh, it's fine. It really we... handles really well. Uh, it's tuned well. It, it's the 800 engine, so it's got enough power for me. And uh, I'm still getting used to it, but uh, surprisingly enough, you know, knock on wood, it's been running, not leaking, so, and so, uh, so behaving I, well. So, so just for the for the listeners, he, he knocked on his on his head because <laughs> you, you can't do those things on you know on radio and podcast and say knock on wood, and people don't understand that they did not need that level of detail. They they need everything. <laughs> they need everything. Carrie, you have something to say about DMV? <laughs> oh, I, I have a question for you. <laughs> Trying to ask you what what is your favorite local track? What's the track that you prefer to be on here locally? We have Willow Streets yeah. of Willow. We have Laguna. We have uh, Fontana. We have Chuckwalla. So it's it's a bit of a tough question to answer for me because um, I I go a lot to Auto Club to Fontana, and I love it because it's an hour away. Uh, the garages are great. You have power. You have all that stuff. The, the, it's it's just a fantastic venue, and you can leave in the morning, come back in the evening. Um, my second favorite will be Chakwala. I like the layout better, but it's just far. You know, it's it's a whole enterprise just to go and come back there. Button Willow is like close second to Chakwala. It's got a nicer layout now that they repaid it. I haven't seen the new one. Looks very very promising. Um, I used to love. That's I started riding at Button Willow. I used to love it, and uh, I crashed there. Oh! And I realized that the reason I got hurt so bad is that the runoffs are terrible. So, and it, I, I even saw a rider in front of me just get off the track, and all of a sudden he, he was fine. The, he was upright, slowing down slowly, and then he disappeared. And I saw his bike explode, and him going in one direction, and he just went into a ditch. Oh! And I talked to the organizer. They said they have to have those those ditches so the water runs around the track and doesn't undermine the, the soil underneath. But there's got to be a better solution because I haven't gone since. It just it worries me that if I want to push and I'm going to get off track, it's unforgiving. Uh, but it's also a nice track and a nice layout. A lot of history there. Uh, Laguna was my... I haven't ridden it enough to have a really strong opinion about it. The only thing I'll say is... Well, first, the weather's fantastic. The area is beautiful. Um, but I got on there and I was ripping like from day one without knowing the track almost. It, it felt so natural and so much fun to ride. It's probably the, the most fun track and on the West Coast. Agreed. Okay. So, uh, for what it's worth, not an expert by any means. I'm I'm a, I'm a big Willow guy. So. Well, I think that the uh, we have three different tracks that are very important to riders' development. So, Button Willow is a track where you have to stay on line. It's a narrow track, and you must follow and stay. You you've got to be very uh, uh, committed, and you got to stay on your line. You cannot, uh, you don't have very many variations on your lines. Most of the turns have one particular apex approach and you got to hit it or you're off the track or something, you have other problems. Go to Willow Springs and what you have there is a wide racetrack, lots of room and lots of blind high-speed turns. So getting developed and Progressing 
with blind turns is a phenomenal advantage that we used to have over the guys back east. Mm -hmm. So anybody would come out here, they would all be struggling with the blind turns back in the day. So I think that's a very good uh, item to develop, to understand you know, your timing, where you come in, how you apex it, and all that other stuff. So the width of the track is also challenging because you still have to pick your line. I mean, being that wide, maybe you don't really want to use all that width. Let's go to Laguna Seca. You have a lot of elevation changes. The track is uh, wide and nice in most places. It has a couple of areas that are narrow from the track was obviously very old, but it's a fun track and it has uh, the elevation changes and the blind turns are also partially yep. there and it develop you as a rider. You must adapt to all these conditions for you to be a very notable rider. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of Chakwala? Chakwala is a very nice track. I, I love what you said about it, and it's true. Um, I have not spent much time there. I've, I've ridden it both ways, and, and I do like it. Uh, the uh, knock on, on Chakwala is that if, if there's too much time between your riding time and the previous riding time, there is a fine mist of... Uh, I don't know if mist is the right Sand, word, right? but the little, uh, yeah, it's it's dust. It's really, really fine. And it um, you don't even see it. You don't know that it's there. And the only time it's really going to be an issue is when you go offline. Yeah. And then you're going to slide a little more than usual. So uh, if you're committed and dedicated and you got your line straight and you're doing well, you probably don't have any issues. Yeah, yeah. My impression of Auto Club is it's a very athletic track. Like if you want to practice point and shoot acceleration and braking, you won't practice braking in Chakwala, let's put it that way. It's just so, it's very flowy. Over there, it's you're going to go from 170, 180 to like 35 in some places, if yeah. you can. Yeah. And, and that's where you practice that. And also the switchbacks are very challenging. I mean, I was, I had a, last weekend we were there, there was a racer from France who came and he got exhausted. He's like, this is a very physical track to ride because you're constantly either accelerating hard or braking hard or switching back and forth. You don't have a lot of time to rest except on the straights, on a couple of straights, and that's it. But, you know, I remember when I was riding behind you, you had perfect lines, like really perfect lines. And you, you did that, the rider development school with uh, Fast Track, right? Yeah, the academy, the Fast Track Academy. Yeah. That was a really good program. I mean, their coaches are world-class there. You got um um Zemke is there Elias is there uh Aldrich was there he was my coach uh who else Eric Bostrom uh taught in that in that series I was there they stopped it now unfortunately and I wish they would restart it but they have a really cool rider development school so if you're in in the lower level you can sign up for it and it's like only a hundred bucks extra a day and you're actually getting excellent coaching from very knowledgeable people To me, I wish that was available when I started riding because that would have saved me a lot of bad habits. Sometimes yeah. you just need little basics. One, to know the track and two, to like not make the obvious, obvious bad habits. And and that, that thing does it. You know, it's not as slow. It doesn't have all the big turns and so on. But it's got its own, I feel, way to develop rider. And people who are good there tend to do well on other tracks. Yeah. I mean, you know that better than most because you race there, right? Yeah, yeah. It's and and I also still when I started riding on a track, uh, the first thing I did was was the fast track school, 
back then i think uh david piles was he owned fast track right and then my instructor was i think a guy named emilio barnal or one yeah i think it was barnal and uh you're old i'm old yeah and uh yeah it was that was one of the best things i've ever done i mean i you know you read about things and you know you, you buy you know twisted the wrist and twisted the wrist too and you sit sit at home and read that back then it was you know paper and uh, but then you you come in on the racetrack and it's a different it's a different game right and first lap on the track i, I ran off track turn nine because <laughs> <laughs> i was like i'm king of the world right 2004 yamaha r1 original tires and i'm like i can do this and uh you can't really until you you get you know the proper technique and experience behind you so yeah obviously i ran off track turn nine first lap but then the rest of the day went smoothly yeah that's another thing this track is is uh, uh, good for is the runoffs are paved so if you want to practice hard braking like turn five turn 12 yeah. 11 12 if you miss your braking point and, and you run off you just keep going straight go in the pits and come back or you turn around in, in five and yeah. and go get into six and or, or even three you can just keep going straight and that's you see a lot of people pushing actually and they miss those turns all the time but you know that they're pushing and and they're kind of learning how to do that and that's a lot better than being in the dirt i've seen some people going to the the hell hell bale what's it called yeah Bale hills, 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 bale hills, bale hills. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I those are them. those are not fun. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen people go in there. Yeah, but yeah, this is where you put the bike on its nose, and and the Jixer, that the K six was never good on the brakes, um, and then I dropped it off here, and and Kara, you put pads on it, and you put lines on it, and it was still fading, right? But uh, the feel and the power behind the race pads. I would just, you know, put the bike on the nose, just start just bra breaking right the cone at the third cone and then between the, the third and the second cone. And that was, you know, that was a bike with 200 horsepower, right? So you can imagine the speeds that, that you hit, I mean, fourth gear in the back straight. And it's just, it's an exercise of how big are your cojones, right? Always, embracing, <laughs> that's number one. <laughs> yeah. You have to push. That was Pridmore's feedback to me too. He's like, you know, he was polite. He didn't say it that way. He said, you ride with a very big safety envelope around you. I'm like, I got to be in the office on Monday morning. He's <laughs> 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 like, that's okay. We can reduce it a little. It, you know what? That's That was the same excuse that I used when I started jiu-jitsu. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I do software. I can't break my, my hand, right? I won't yeah. be able to type. Just do it. Just do it. You'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you can't spend time worrying about that. It it will come to you sooner that way. Yeah, that's right. And actually, I mean, people don't know that when they start, but bikes ride better fast. I remember riding. I have an R6 and the MV, and both of them. If you ride them at a certain slow pace, they feel like they don't turn. They they feel very difficult. You feel like you're in danger all the time, and I'm struggling into the turns. And you get at least to a certain speed level. I'm not saying you're going to break records, but at a certain speed, they're just like butter. They're cutting through these corners. They're doing what they're supposed to do at the speed they're supposed to do, and it's amazing. And so safe riding um, has a certain speed to it. Yeah, because those all those bikes are developed by riders that are way better than us, right? Yeah. 
Well, that's the other thing they used to tell me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting worried that, you know, five degrees lean angle in, my, in the early days. And they're going, look, this bike can do a lot more than you can ever put it through. So don't worry. Do what you need to do and, and stop worrying about the bike being out of shape or, or anything of the sort. And, and that was good advice, too. Yeah. And, and now with, with the electronics, it's everything so safe that, you know, you can ride your heart out and the bike's just going to do what it needs to do to stay on two wheels. Yeah, I gotta try these electronic things yeah. we keep people talking about all the time. Except for the ABS, you, you don't <laughs> want ABS. Trust me. Oh, how many times I I blew a turn because the the R the R4 ABS just kicked in and just got me offline. I oh. almost did that in Phillip Island actually. The the weekend where we met Kerry, uh, we came the weekend before and rode those uh, S1000 RRs. And I have to say, this is a good bike, by the way. Pridmore I, was there then. Pridmore was there. I got on it and it felt natural, like within half a session. Which is, you know, it's it's not easy to adapt to a bike, but they had ABS. And you get this long straight, and it's partly, it's like Laguna Seca. You don't see it for a bit, and then it, it just starts coming down, and you see where the turn is. And this is where you got to start figuring out where you break. And I, when I started pushing, and all of a sudden the ABS started working, I'm like, oh, my God, that's yeah. a fast. Luckily, it's a very fast right turn coming into it, so you can forgive a lot of mistakes. But you you start getting scared because you're coming in at what, 180. The fast guys were going almost 200, I think. There, whatever the bike's capable of, yeah. you hit it all. Yeah, yeah. And but that just, was not a good feeling not, when yeah. you hit the brakes and all of a sudden the bike lets go. Oh, yeah. All right, I think we ran out of. Uh, yeah, I know we should stop. Yeah, we should stop. I'm not even sure it's recording. But but we'll see. One thirteen, nah, it's still going. Nah, it's 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 gone. It's gone. Yeah. But now now I have to uh, go edit it and use Audacity or whatever it is, and then be audacious. Put it up there. So if you guys are, are are listening to that and we actually made it, made it online, and and you're listening on, I don't know, Google Podcast or iTunes, uh, just just leave a good review, if you want. If you're not gonna leave a good review, then we're gonna find you, and then we're gonna. <laughs> We're going to tickle you until you do. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah. Gary, thank, thank you very thank much you, for hosting us and, and your, your amazing history and, and, and input. I mean, this is, this is like the golden standard in motorcycling. If you ever learn, want to learn anything, come here and, and sit around and look around for a few minutes. You like that? Now, now you, should, you should look at me and say, you know, Gary Andrew, really? <laughs> I'm like, it's, like, it's like Don Rickles, you know. Telling the Sinatra story and stories, and they were like, "Oh, you know, Don, you know, you know Sinatra." And yeah, I'm I'm friends with Sinatra, and nobody believed him, right? Until yeah. he came out on uh, on the Tonight Tonight Show, and Sinatra was the guest, right? It's the same with me and you. You know, Carrie Andrew? Yeah, I do. <laughs> we go we go way back, right? And we have him on the fo- on the podcast because we're famous people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, we just got him. We were lucky because because I know him. But other than that, I don't think uh, you know. We should we should go on ne- next time. We should we should bring Tom Cruise in. Let's see if we yeah we can yeah if if, if Gary you'll accept that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh see uh, who who was it? Um, well, you have Brett Harrelson, and you have uh, there's one other guy that uh, from the actors group. That rides really hard. Oh, uh, John Wick. No, besides him. Oh. Maybe a little before him. Anyway, I, I, I forget the scene, but he came by try, asking me for one of my bikes. 
So uh, that was quite a while ago, but uh, yes. But I know Brett Harrelson. I've built him a couple of couple of good bikes. That guy hauls ass. <laughs> Usher rides too. I, I was at uh, Ducati Beverly Hills, and and he uh, his bike was there for work. Um, Has he got a Ducati now? He's got a yeah. I think it's a blinged out monster. Uh, I don't know if he did anything different with it, but uh, yeah, that was him. Um, and uh, who else rides? A lot of people riding. Brad Pitt is riding. Yeah. Yeah. I I remember the story where um, remember that what, what was that sixty thousand dollar Ducati. Um, the Moto the Desmos Adichie. Remember that yeah. story where Tom Cruise wanted it and Brad Pitt wanted it, and they were sworn to secrecy that they're not going to tell Brad Pitt that Tom Cruise got his first, or was it the other way around? And you know, uh, a lot of a lot of celebrities ride, and a lot of celebrities show up to MotoGP races. Maybe they should start showing up to Moto America races, and 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 just you know. Take action on their social media and just you know be good influencers, right? Right. So really, we need we need to finish because because I'm running out of tape. No, I'm just kidding. It's not tape. It's it's an SD card. But thank you guys for listening. And this has been Carl Rotner and Nabil Kabani having. Thank you for visiting. It was a great time. Good to shoot the ship with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. Having fun with the legendary Carrie Andrew. Thanks, guys. Bye. <laughs>